This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. So as Angela Merkel steps down as party leader, we look at what her legacy will be and whether the EU project can survive without her. We also look at WhatsApp and why it's made it harder for MPs to plot. And finally, we ask whether Brits should be allowed to forage for wild mushrooms. First, Europe's Mutti is stepping down. After dismal election results for her party, the CDU, Angela Merkel announced that she is resigning as party leader. She's been Germany's Chancellor and Europe's de facto leader for 13 years. So what legacy does she leave behind and can anyone succeed her leadership? In this week's issue, Douglas Murray argues that her departure is the end of the Federalist EU project. He joins me now together with Sophie Pedder, the Economist Paris Bureau Chief and Emmanuel Macron's biographer. So Douglas, you start your piece by talking about the end of the Merkel project. Can you tell us a bit more about what that project is and why it's become quite so unpopular? Well, the argument I'm making my piece is that Angela Merkel has really been holding a vision of the EU, not the EU itself, but a vision of the EU together in recent years during her very considerable reign. And now this week, of course, she's after a political drubbing for her party in Hess. She's announced that she's going to, first of all, step down as party leader and also will not seek re-election as chancellor in 2021, thus putting a, a, a limit on her her role and her time as chancellor. She's been in this position, of course, since 2005 and as leader of her party since 2000. This is an extraordinary political achievement by any estimation, and, and that has to be given credit. But as I say, the, the specific role that she has played seems to be a role that is going to be vacant, at any rate, in the years to come. I mean, you talk in your piece about how her vision at one point seemed unassailable. What, what, what exactly has changed? Well, I say that the ever closer vision seemed unassailable. And, and, and there's just a conglomeration of things that have occurred, whether, whether you approve them or deprecate them. Conglomeration of things starting, I would say, with the intransigence of the Visegrad group towards Berlin and Brussels. Obviously, the British vote to leave the European Union and... Most importantly, in many ways, the Italian elections earlier this year, which I say in the piece, it's almost a sort of terrible as it may sound to some people. It's a a sort of perfect obituary for Angela Merkel because the two big challenges of her time in power, the financial crisis, Eurozone crisis and the migration crisis, you know, of the two parties formed the Italian government, the Five Star Movement significantly has come about because of the aftermath of the Eurozone crisis. And the League, of course, has has, has grown during the uh, Italian experience of the migration crisis. So in some ways, this this seems to me to be the, the ultimate moment before, as I say, Angela Merkel's domestic political demise. Sophie, Merkel's departure clearly leaves a position open and and Macron is clearly one of the obvious candidates. Do you think he has what it takes to fill the role? 
It's very difficult for him at the moment. If you look back to the moment he was elected in May 2017, so about 18 months ago, Europe was a very different place. You know, the German elections, federal elections hadn't taken place yet. And I think he was looking forward to a period of working with a strong German chancellor and certainly having partners such as Italy, that he would be able to forge kind of alliances, different sorts of alliances with outside the Franco-German relationship, which is the traditional motor of European policy. But that was then, this is now. And I think what's happened to, to, to Merkel puts Macron in a very difficult situation. He is increasingly isolated. He, it is impossible for France to push things forward without German cooperation. It was difficult enough, even when Merkel was looking like a stronger leader, that Berlin and Paris found it very difficult and always have done up to a point to agree on what to do about reforming the Eurozone. That's sort of Macron's number one issue. But he, at least, you know, with a balanced relationship between him and Merkel, there might have been hope that that he could get the Germans to move forward. Well, the last six months, if not longer than that, have proven proven very difficult for him. So I, I don't think he lacks the ambition. I don't think he lacks the desire to take on the sort of leadership role. But I think, you know, he can't do that without some sort of partnerships within Europe itself. Could I ask, Sophie, in your experience, are there politicians in Germany who you think President Macron could particularly well work with and others who you think you'd be less able to work with? Well, I mean, I think without putting names to policies, I think what you need to look at is the sort of constituency which understands that in order to make the Eurozone a stronger place to withstand future financial shocks or economic shocks, that it has to have some form of sort of common approach to the budget and with with some sort of fiscal transfers in order to absorb or sort of cover those shocks. Now, there aren't that many constituencies in Berlin that believe in that sort of policy at all. So, you know, you're not looking at an array of candidates who are lining up, who are thinking the same way as, as Macron. Having said that, you know, I think that that's always been the diff- it's always been the case that in in all all European policy starts from a position of of, of extreme divergence between Berlin and, and Paris, but they have to work together to move forward and to find some sort of common ground, and that's what's looking more difficult right now. And Douglas, do you think there's any chance we'll see a more nationalist leader taking her place as the leader of Europe and perhaps threatening her federalist ideals? It, it's possible, though, I mean, the, you have the issue of the commission. There are people you could think of who who might seek to fill that role. My own my own feeling is that the, the issue in, in Germany is really that almost anybody could replace Angela Merkel and gain back some of the trust of what the CDU lost because of her immovability since the migrant crisis of 2015. I mean, it's it's so striking. I give one of the opinion polls in the piece about the, the swiftness of her fall of her approval ratings from 2015 to 2016. And, you know, it's been very clear, I've written this before, that if she had have found some way to plausibly row back or to do anything more than just say that, you know, things could have been done a bit better, then you might have seen the ability of her to stay. But it became obvious, I think, at least two years ago, after regional elections in Germany, that that she wasn't willing to do that, but that the opportunity for her party was clearly there, not to move in some kind of nationalist direction at all, but to be able to regain the trust of uh, of CDU voters that 
that you know under new management they would recognize that mistakes had been made and there'd be a there'd be a real not relaunch but a uh, to put it too strong but some kind of real realignment of the party on that issue and and with her in place that was just always impossible and Sophie do you think Macron will be prepared to learn any lessons from the Merkel era I mean I don't think that he is you know, I, I, for, for one thing, I don't think that he considers that the Merkel era is quite over yet. You know, I think it's an important point to make that she remains the Chancellor and there is a run-up to a summit in December at which the French and the, at least are hoping to make some sort of progress on their Eurozone reform proposals. And, you know, she remains in, in office, if not in the same position of strength. So I don't think she, he's now sort of looking yet at the at the post-Merkel era. I, I think that if he is to look back at what she's done he has has hugest admiration for her in many respects i think that he sees her the position she took on immigration as being a one that was morally right he used the phrase that she rescued our collective dignity that was the phrase he used when she opened the doors to to migrants from from syria and and beyond and that was something that was very much you know a sort of against the grain of French politics at the time. There weren't very many people making those sorts of comments. It was more of a question of sort of trying to keep migrants out of France at the time. So I think that was quite brave to make that comment. And I think he sees her as being a, you know, a leader who gave Europe a voice. And that for Macron is absolutely crucial. He, I think, has a very sort of historical, a historical sweep when he thinks about Europe. He looks at the rise of China. He looks at the volatility of the United States and the, the pivot that was already taking place away from Europe even before Donald Trump came in. And I think he sees that Europe can only exist if it's united and if it has a it can find some kind of common common and strong voice. And I think he admires that for the period that she was articulating that voice, she, he admires the way in which she did that. So, you know, I don't think he looks back at it in a negative light. And I think in many respects, he will very much regret not having her to work with. Just add to that two things. Firstly, of course, as as to whether or not Angela Merkel remains in office, there's a, a lot of different opinions on this at the moment in Germany. There are some people close to the scene who say, well, you know, in some weird sort of German way, uh, yes, she'll be allowed to, to, to see out her time and she will step down as Chancellor in 2021 and everything will be orderly. Others who, who recognise that uh, years of a Chancellor who has announced her departure date and who becomes weaker and weaker during that period will encourage the the considerable number of her colleagues who uh, would like to take her position to act fast rather than wait all these years and 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 who knows it it really could could be either thing but i think it would be a mistake to think of angela merkel's position in the years ahead as being in any way strong i mean this is it's very hard to think of a political leader who announces their departure like this and actually gets to go in the manner of their choosing. And and just secondly, I just say very quickly on on that. I mean, the issue, of course, is is not just it's not to do with European unity or the EU unity. It's a, it's a specific issue of the kind of Europe that Angela Merkel, in particular, was pushing. Because, of course, as I say in the piece, many other countries in Europe just do not like that direction and have been resisting it. And that too needs to be accepted if there is to be a form of unity. Finally, Douglas, can I just ask you what you think this will might mean for Brexit? Oh, God. <laughs> I thought we were going to get the whole thing almost without the B word being used. Who knows? I, mean, I said from the outset that one mistake that could could occur from the UK would be the mistake of thinking that we were negotiating throughout with an entirely static body. 
think I wrote this in The Spectator at the time, that actually the EU itself is a moving body. It's not a homogenous, static thing. And I think that has been something which not enough people have had in their minds in the last two years. But in the last two years, let's face it, this country's made almost every imaginable mistake it could has shot ourselves in every available foot and and so on. So, I mean, of all the many things that haven't happened, that's not recognising that looks fairly minor. Thanks, Sophie and Douglas. Hello, I'm Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk, where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Brownie Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes Store. Next, how to explain Theresa May's resilience. The answer may not so much lie in any of her personal charms as it does in a group messaging app that the Tory MPs love. In this week's issue, Katie Balls argues that messaging on WhatsApp has taken the place of face-to-face plotting in Westminster. The problem is, though, how can you build trust over a phone and how can you make sure the messages don't leak? Katie joins me now, together with Paul Staines, a.k.a. Guido Fawkes, and Stuart Jackson, former MP and advisor to David Davis. So, Katie, can you start by telling us why Tories love WhatsApp quite so much? Well, I think... The craze has been going on for some time, but in the past two years, it's really accelerated. I think initially they liked WhatsApp because you can't FOI it. So it's freedom of information proof. It's also easy to message lots of people. And then finally, because it sounds very secure, it's encrypted. It made them think they could send all these messages and they would never really see the light of day. The slight problem with that is no matter what end-to-end encryption you have, if you have 315 of your colleagues on one thread, something thing is going to leak. Paul, Katie talks about people sending screenshots of WhatsApp messages. How often do you <laughs> send a screenshot? We, we, we get a good few of them. And I get the feeling sometimes some of those things that are written on WhatsApp are written to be leaked. I'm thinking famously of the Boris long-winded kind of WhatsApp messages. So I would say, oh, get behind Theresa, that kind of stuff. I think that was written to, for positioning purposes. And, you know, he expected it to get out. Katie, what sorts of groups exist? Well, there's many groups. It started with the so-called official Tory WhatsApp group. As Paul just pointed out, the problem with that is that because it leaks so much, in a way it's become a way that MPs can do press releases. They're more likely to make it into the news because a journalist can say, oh, I've got a scoop of someone basically virtue signaling or something else and then getting it out there. Probably the most prolific is the European research group WhatsApp Fred, which is the Brexiteers and has some some talk of basically how to vote but also just sharing of articles thoughts on Brexit I think there was a message from Jacob in the ERG WhatsApp group saying it's becoming very leaky here and of course we ran that (laughs) And then you have the pro-EU group I'm told by a Tory MP that they often see Antoinette Sandbeck whatsapping furiously from the chamber on this pro-EU one with her colleagues such as Dominic Grieve. You have the Brexit delivery group WhatsApp led by Simon Hart. It's quite a dry WhatsApp group because it's all about being quite pragmatic. So I think that one is one of the more dull chats. You have the WhipZap group. So even the government whips have a WhatsApp thread where they talk about people. And then you also have a PPS thread, which is basically parliamentary private secretaries basically asking for favours in quite a desperate manner so they don't get in trouble from their 
boss. And then I think most of the intakes of MPs, at least the younger ones, the 2015, 2017, also have their own WhatsApp group. So you have many going on. You have some that are even smaller because the more they leak, the more groups become each trying to be more secure. And I think I had one member of government complain they get about 80 WhatsApp messages a day now. Gosh, Stuart, from your time as a former MP, did you have any experience of these WhatsApp groups? Yes, I was involved in one of the first Brexit ones. Actually, there were two Brexit delivery groups. There were the sort of one that I would call the careerist group, which you've said quite rightly is dull. But there's another one, which is a sort of generic one open to non-parliamentarians like me and parliamentarians. But we've got to remember that Tory MPs are keyboard warriors like everyone else. And this is a great displacement activity for them because it's quite hard to be rude to people you don't like in the tea room. You've got to be, you know, inordinately polite to these people. Whereas what you really think of them is what you put on WhatsApp because, you know, you're hiding behind cyberspace and it's very much a village in Westminster. And nevertheless, you can say what you really think with the expectation that you're not going to see them for a few days. So in many ways, they're kind of sophisticated keyboard warriors. Paul, do you think WhatsApp has enhanced Westminster's gossip? I think it's made it easy to get written evidence of things, but I I get this feeling that senior politicians are getting very wary of it because it's becoming so leaky and that I think people are going to go back to phoning each other up. Old school methods. Katie, you also talking your piece about how WhatsApp has basically saved Theresa May because no one can actually plot properly. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I think we've seen, because actually we have all these WhatsApp groups now, because MPs are all messaging each other, there's less of a need to go to the members' tea room or the strangers' bar to that private dining club for dinner and to actually meet in person because they think they can stay tuned in from their office and so forth just by being on these threads. And that means you have lots of people leaking. It also means, I had one MP say to me that perhaps I think they're a bit tired of dining alone, but it it means that you don't actually meet up. So it's not very collaborative. And that means that your social circles are not widening. And the thing is, if you don't trust your colleagues not to leak your comments about how upskirting is bad, why would you trust them not to leak you saying that you want to get rid of your mutual boss? So I think it means you're not developing those relationships that you'd need if you were actually going to collaborate and actually perform a plot rather than just talking about one. This reminds me, I think we were in here a while ago talking about how teenagers weren't getting pregnant and having less sex because they were sexting. Is it politicians conspiring on WhatsApp are actually failing to conspire properly now? (laughs) There are some senior politicians that have been sexting, but we won't mention (laughs) who they are. Those are the screenshots you want. But also the whips do dirty tricks. I mean, one within the last few months... The whip sent a different WhatsApp message to different PPSs in order to check which one might be leaking information to a third party. And that PPS was caught out. And so they're they're always thinking of new ways. And of course, the only thing about that is they boasted about it. So we found out, you know, who'd done it. But the whips, I think, will use WhatsApp in a much more proactive way than they would have been before which would have been just have a cup of tea every quarter with an MP now they can send out key messages they can admonish people uh, and they can find out very much in terms of intelligence what's going on. And Katie what about journalists I mean lots of journalists use WhatsApp how do they interact with this? I think WhatsApp is great for journalists, partly because, for one, you get sent screen grabs by MPs or, you know, at least they might pass you their phone. You can look at a WhatsApp thread. And then on top of that, I mean, for journalists, 
basically a large part of her job is to gossip so it it means it's much easier and I often find sometimes I do think it, there is much merit in speaking to a politician in person or on the phone but text can be a bit clunky and whatsapp is easy to have a message while they're doing some dare say even while they're watching pmqs you can whatsapp an mp because most of them now spend most of the time looking at their phone rather than looking at Theresa may or jeremy corbyn but what i think is quite interesting is because of all these leaks you're now seeing certain mps try out these more secure apps so things like confide or telegram which mean that you can't screenshot it without the person on the thread getting sent a notification so i do think they're coming up with ways to try and crack down on how this helps journalists but well, you can always get another phone and take a picture can you? <laughs> exactly it's quite a technical maneuver i mean you might be more skilled and paul i mean i'm sure you won't be able to tell us who leaks but i mean are there certain mps who are particularly prolific or are all MPs up to I think I think those of us on the receiving end know who's prolific. <laughs> I, I am. I can think of one particular MP who I feel is using it as a way of spamming us because he's sending out so much. Do you, do you remember when the email started and your granny would start sending you jokes? I think <laughs> I think that's what's happening with some MPs and WhatsApp because they they now can easily do a sort of group message, and we're not sure if we're getting a group message or an individual message. And just finally, what what are all your favourite WhatsApp scandals that have come out in the last year or so? I mean, I personally enjoyed just an example of what WhatsApp had morphed into. So you had Christopher Chope block the upskirting bill. And all of a sudden, I think these MPs decided that actually, if, if they went on Twitter, issued a statement saying that they were, you know, against upskirting, unlike their colleague, which he wasn't doing it purely for those reasons, that it wouldn't get that much traction. So they all just took to the WhatsApp thread and post these long paragraph long monologues about how disgusted they were. And then all of a sudden, all these journalists got, got sent them. And we all, I think, played ball. We all posted them because it was an interesting thing. But it just showed how actually WhatsApp had become a place to just release your public statement my favorite is the senior politician who shall remain nameless who sent quite a tender ba do love note to his girlfriend presumably not his wife and put it on whatsapp and to their credit his colleagues posted several dozen messages to push it up the scale so it wasn't picked up but no doubt that will come out in the wash one day my funniest whatsapp mishap was when Westminster's most famous Coke dealer first discovered WhatsApp and sent a group message. And then you could see all these people, all these names I recognise, exiting the WhatsApp group, like, doesn't doesn't she know how to use it? What's going on? And I said, oh, I never thought he would. <laughs> yeah, slightly more dry, but there was a good moment when, when Karen Bradley was culture secretary. She took to the Tory WhatsApp thread and she asked if she was the only one who had the TV licence inspectors going after her which was a bit of a fail given that you would think the DCMS head would have paid their TV licence and it obviously leaked. <laughs> Hello, I'm Dominic Green. I'm Life and Arts Editor for Spectator USA and I'm inviting you to join me on our weekly Life and Arts podcast. Each week we'll be running the gamut of American cultural life talking to writers, actors, musicians, philosophers and even the odd politician. So join me. Search for Spectator USA on the iTunes Store. And last, if forests provide, why aren't Brits allowed to forage? Recently, foragers have got in trouble with the authorities for picking mushrooms, berries, chestnuts and more. 
But in this week's issue, professional mushroom forager Daniel Butler argues that the right to forage is as ancient as the Magna Carta. His enemies, the Forestry Commission and other government authorities, have got it wrong. He joins me now, together with Josh Barry, food and drinks writer at the Eye Paper. So Daniel, can you start by telling us what exactly you mean by foraging? Foraging, I think, is the act of going out and, well, I suppose in its loosest term, it's hunting for plants and fungi and foliage and flowers that are edible and that you intend to eat. But I mean, half the fun is not necessarily actually getting stuff that you're going to eat. It's just looking for it. And you've noticed these signs going up telling people that they aren't allowed to forage. Where have you seen those signs? Well, there are certain hot spots where they tend to go up more than anywhere else. The New Forest seems to be one of the worst places, but I gather that signs are going up in some of the royal parks in London as well. And I mean, you talk in your piece about mushrooms in particular, and you, and you run these mushroom foraging trips. I mean, are mushrooms in particular being cracked down on as something not to be foraged? Well, I think there are several aspects to mushrooms. I mean, the first thing is that most wild mushrooms actually have to be picked from the wild. I mean, they can't be grown or cultivated in any way. So anybody who's ever eaten, say, porcini, you know, on a pizza or in a mushroom dish in a supermarket or in a restaurant, that mushroom will have had to be picked from the wild. It just simply cannot be cultivated. I think, though, that there is a particular problem in Britain in that we just don't understand fungi generally. I mean, you'd laugh if I suggested that the worst kind of commercial foragers in Britain are the WI rampaging down the hedgerows, picking blackberries and crab apples. You'd think that was completely ridiculous. The suggestion that they might somehow be damaging the apple trees or, for that matter, the brambles would be just totally laughable. And yet people do seriously seem to think that by picking a mushroom, and a mushroom is just another fruiting body, it comes up of something called a mycelium, which is like a root structure which grows underground. And once or twice a year, the the mycelium finds that conditions are just perfect, usually to do with the weather or moving the movement of saps and nutrients around a plant. And it pushes up these things, the fruiting bodies, um, the equivalent of a blackberry. And picking those causes absolutely no harm or damage whatsoever to the mycelium. The mycelium will carry on producing those mushrooms for year upon year upon year upon year. Josh, what's your experience of foraging? Well, my foraging is, is, is certainly not so scientific. I'd never heard of mycelium before, but I've certainly been to the woods and accompanied chefs in their pursuit of mushrooms and wild fruits and nuts and so on. The foraging that I've done has been kind of a couple of years ago when the fad was sort of taking off and people were paying to be educated by expert foragers in places like Cornwall, Sussex, Kent, Essex at times and it's a sort of, it's a kind of weekend away where people get together and go waffling off in the woods a bit like uh, Hugh Funny Whitting Stool and so on and then you bring all the fruits of your labour back to the table and then cook it together. Daniel have you noticed this that there's a sort of fad for foraging at the moment and, and if so do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Well I don't think that there is actually really a fad I think it's always gone on a bit I mean there was back in the early 1970s there was a famous book Food for Free by Richard Maybe, which took off and everybody was reading it and our hedgerows and our mushrooms are still there in spite of that book no it's it's been quite popular there there is an element of people being interested in nature but I don't think I certainly don't think it's really taking off. I don't think it's a sort of mass sort of fashion or anything. But basically, I think that foraging is a really something which really ought to be encouraged. I mean, we ought to be encouraging people to take an interest in nature and in the great outdoors. We're very worried about kids and childhood obesity and our children being glued to screens all the time. 
how much better to actually take them out into the woods, particularly at this time of year when you've got all these fantastic colours and scents and wildlife going on. I mean, you know, it's not just humans that are foraging. If you go out into the woods at the moment, you'll see squirrels and jays desperately looking for acorns, for example, to stash away for the winter. It's just a natural part of life, and it's something that we really ought to be encouraging. I mean, one of the things about fungi which I think is very interesting is that because the British are a peculiar mycophobic nation, because they don't know what fungi are, they basically are kind of blind to them. They'll walk right past them without noticing them. And it's only when you've actually taught somebody that this mushroom here can be eaten, that one can't, oh, and that one's poisonous, that people actually start, the scales start falling off their eyes and they actually start noticing things which are going on all around them. And you talk in your piece also about these signs that are going up in sort of National Trust car parks or Royal Park car parks, and you say there's actually no legal backing to them. I mean, what, what's your argument that there is no legal backing? Well, the argument basically rooted 801 years ago when the Charter of the Forest was passed in 1217. And this is the much more important but much less well-known sort of brother or sister legislation to Magna Carta. And whilst the Magna Carta gave the rights, I mean, defined the rights between barons and the king, the Charter of the Forest actually gave basic foraging rights to the everyday person. It allowed them to sort of pick up firewood and foliage and fruits and things in the woods without fear of prosecution. Now, obviously, over the centuries, that has been refined and tweaked a bit. But basically, in, under British law, and this is clearly defined in the Theft Act 1968, it says, picking mushrooms, flowers, fruit or foliage for your own consumption cannot be theft. In other words, it can't be prevented. Now, two years ago, the New Forest authorities were putting up signs all over the place saying mushroom picking was banned. And they actually said very explicitly that it was banned and illegal. And I went down there with a journalist from The Times and we challenged them to actually arrest me. And after a very long time, it took about two hours, they did finally concede that they had no legal powers whatsoever to stop me. Josh, I mean, in Daniel's piece, he talks about environmentalists and how they're concerned about foraging and perhaps taking food away from animals. I mean, do you think they have good reason to be concerned? Well, I suppose, well, there was that that story recently, wasn't there, about a woman who was um, accosted. I don't know whether it's fair to say she was accosted, but she was certainly, someone certainly attempted to stop her from foraging. I absolutely, I think that's, you can't argue against those points there about how, if there's something from 1217 that says we're allowed to pick and forage freely, then then that, that, that stands. And I certainly wouldn't discourage anyone from going out and picking uh, mushrooms or any food because it is a worthwhile endeavour. In terms of environmental sense, I suppose that's where I disagree in that I think when it does take off, and it has done in the past, it does get, if not a mass fad, it may not be you know one of the biggest uh, crazes around but it certainly gets to that point where a specific group of people perhaps get a little bit overzealous with things and perhaps don't respect nature in the way that perhaps nature intended and and that's why I suppose it would be important if we are all going to get into foraging and I absolutely agree again that certainly in Britain we have a really limited understanding of, of the environment and there are a few select groups in the, in the countryside who are experts and I suppose that's why the way that we do go foraging or certainly me someone from living in London my experience is booking a weekend away and going and seeing people in Cornwall being taught about it and I suppose that's quite important if we are going to protect the environment and enjoy nature then we really do need to have some sort of education as a as a backbone to try and understand what mushrooms to pick and what not mushrooms 
And just finally, Daniel, so people listening who might be interested in going mushroom foraging, but perhaps are a little nervous about what to pick, perhaps less for environmental reasons, but more for kind of, if you get it wrong, it could have quite drastic, drastic consequences. What, what advice would you give them about getting into mushroom foraging? Well, I think first and foremost, get a very good book. It is certainly true. I mean, the, the, per- the risks of fu- fungi foraging are much lower than most people actually think they are. However, if you do eat a death cap, you've got a really, really serious problem. So get yourself a really good guidebook and preferably do go out with somebody like, for example, myself or one of the groups that Josh has, has mentioned around Cornwall or the, or the southeast and get people to actually show you what is and isn't edible. And certainly when you're starting out, restrict yourselves to the really easily identified with total certainty sort of mushrooms, which, by the way, is not the field mushroom. The field mushroom has a, a poisonous lookalike which never kills, but, but can make people very unwell, which looks just like a field mushroom. You're actually much better off going for some of the really weird looking mushrooms, which basically have nothing poisonous that look like them. I think that there would be one other slight thing that I would say that, that when it comes to depriving animals of nutrition, wild mushrooms have very little nutrition in them. And if you feel guilty about it, and it's also, they come up at a time of year when there is a lot of stuff out there, for, you know, like, for example, acorns and beech mast. So if you feel remotely guilty about it, why don't you just put stuff out on your bird table during the winter, which is when the animals really could do with it. Daniel and Josh, thanks for joining. And that's all for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We always like to hear from you. And just a reminder that if you'd like to only hear the Spectator podcast, you can find it at its new home when you search Spectator podcast on the iTunes store. Or if you'd like to subscribe to all of the Spectator podcasts, just search for Spectator Radio. And do pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as Tanya Gold writing in defence of Kevin Spacey, Mary Wakefield's love for Mills and Boone, and Ian Dale on the plight of the self-employed. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.